Please open your Bibles and turn to the passage for today, Genesis 5, 1 through 6, 8, and follow along as I read. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, 
and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. The book of Genesis tells us the story of creation. It tells us of man's horrific fall into sin. And it tells us of God's amazing promise. Genesis 3.15, right? One from the seed of the woman is going to come and crush the head of the seed of the serpent, overturn the curse. It also shows us how God's promise is in fact unfolding in a broken and sinful world. Thus, in our last Genesis sermon, we saw God bless Adam and Eve with two sons, which was a very hopeful statement in light of the promise. You, you read of a son and you think, all right, let's go do some skull crushing. Only he crushes his brother's skull, not the seed of the serpent. And thus all looks bleak. You, you, you may have had some initial hope, and yet it seems that the son is in fact the seed of the serpent and crushed his brother, the seed of the woman's skull. And Moses then took us through Cain's lineage as if to make clear this is not the line, right? We said some genealogies are there for the purpose of just putting them aside. This isn't it. That lineage landed on a guy named Lamech, the first polygamist who boasted of murder. For all intents and purposes, all looked lost, but God, right? We love those but God statements, but God resurrected the line. At the very end of what was a dreadful narrative of doom and gloom, God gave Adam and Eve another son, Seth. And we're told Seth had a son named Enosh, and at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord, signaling, this is the line you want to be watching. Here's the line of the woman. This is the line that we are to hope in. And that's where we pick it up this morning in chapter 5. If you were here for our overview sermon, you might recall that we talked about the different sections of Genesis, and the way chapter 5 begins shows us we're entering into a new section in this book. We talked about how Moses uses um, these toledoth phrases. Toledoth is the Hebrew word that we take as these are the generations of. So you have these, these are the generations of statements to start a new section. And each section isn't all about the person at the heading at the beginning, but but the section is all about where the line is going. And so, after the narrative of God's creation in chapter 1, we had the first of these transitions. And in chapter 2, verse 4, we saw these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. And we said that made perfect sense there because at that point, people had not yet been created. And in chapter 2, you'll recall Moses took us on a deep dive into how God created the first man and woman. And you move through that and land on Seth and Enosh. Here we have the Toledoth of Adam. These are the generations of Adam, and this one will land on Noah in the end of our narrative today. Each one of these major sections are for the purpose of advancing the narrative as to how God is unfolding this glorious promise in the midst of a painfully broken world. And that's where we go with this section. I've titled This first part, ongoing evidence of a fallen world. Now, you might be inclined to say, well, wait a minute. He he said at the end of the last section, 
last time that at that time people began to call on the name of the Lord and, and we're about to trace the line of Seth. So shouldn't things be getting better? And this is where clarity is so critical. It will be crystal clear by the time we're done today, but we must always remember God is working out His glorious promise of grace in the midst of extreme brokenness. It's very evident in the text here. After alerting us to the fact that we're in a new section, these are the generations of Adam, he he sort of reprises the first few chapters. And notice that he reminds us that Adam was created in the likeness of God, pointing us back to Genesis 1.26, and that he created him male and female so as to multiply and, and spread the image of God all across the globe, right? Well, I want you to notice a slight but important change to the wording in verse 3. And there we read, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. And we need to be careful because it's easy to say too much here and also too little. If for some go too far and say, ah, look, Adam was created in the image of God, Seth is born in the image of Adam, thus the image of God is now gone in a fallen world. And that's not right. That's, that's going too far. But there is a difference, and we need to be clear on it. Whereas God created Adam and Eve in His own image and likeness, through normal procreation, Seth is in the image and likeness of Adam, who, who, who's in the image of God, right? So the image of God is passed on, but because of the fall, human sinfulness and its consequences is also passed on. And that's why theologians will often say that the image of God was marred at the fall. It's still there. We need to be clear on that. But because of sin, it, it's, it's different. And fast-forwarding to where all of this is going, that's why Paul says in Colossians 3 that when we put on the new man, right, that is when we come to Christ, he says we start this process of being renewed in knowledge after the image of our Creator. But that's getting ahead of ourselves. But back in Genesis 5, it's clear We're in a fallen world where the image of God is indeed marred at the fall. And we see yet another indication that this is true. And it's the constant refrain, and he died. I trust that stood out to you during the scripture reading. In Genesis 2, God told Adam, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And of course, in Genesis 3, that's exactly what they did, right? They, they, they question the goodness of God. They doubt the revealed will of God. They put themselves as judge as to whether what God has said is good, right, and true. And thus, they rebelliously ate of that tree. And here it's as though Moses wants us to be painfully clear. Death reigned from Adam. God's warning was true. And thus... If you read the passage aloud, the one thing that is particularly striking is the constant refrain, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. I mean, I think you could say that the two main points of this genealogy are, one, to move forward the narrative of how God's promise would unfold, and two, everyone died. Last genealogy, Cain's line, seed of the serpent, doesn't even mention death, except for the fact that Lamech killed someone. But but the purpose was different. The purpose there was to show the wickedness of that line and, and that it's not the line God would be working through. 
here, this is the line, and oh yeah, they all die. No superheroes in this line. Oh, I'm sure they did some interesting stuff in their lives. I I would venture to guess that some of them had some pretty cool accomplishments. But what God wanted us to know is that they lived, they fathered the next person in the line so as to move us one step closer to Jesus, and they died. Thus, as Paul says, death reigned from Adam. Now, there are glimmers of hope here. The point is not merely one funeral after the next. In verses 21 to 24, we read of a guy named Enoch. And this one's obviously different. Here here we read, when Enoch lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God. That's different right there. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years, and he died. Oh, that's not what it says. That's what you expect following the pattern. That's why it's so striking. What it actually says is all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not for God took him. Now, commentators differ over exactly what this means, and we have to admit we we really don't know. There's not a lot of detail given us here. Uh, Very well could have been like something like Elijah, right, where where God sends a chariot of fire that, that swooped him up and ushers him right into the presence of God. Or the point is that he walked with God, thus his death would be different. He had, he, had, he had faith in the promise, thus he was not symbolizing that he died, but, but different from others in the line because he was ushered into the presence of God. Again, I can't tell you exactly what happened here. I happen to think it's more like Elijah's story, but I wasn't there and neither were you. What I can tell you, and this is really important, is that right here in the fifth chapter of the Bible... God wants us to see that there is hope of life with God that transcends death even after the fall. And this is super important because there are some out there who want to tell you that the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, know nothing of an afterlife and that it's the invention of those who came later, but it's right here in the fifth chapter of the Bible. The pattern's here for a reason, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. And Enoch, besides being an actual historical figure, is also here for a reason. He is here to stand out. You can't help but just be reading along, and you start going, and, 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 and over time you start glossing over, right? Because it's just repetitive, and then you sort of have the, wait, what? What just happened? He walked with God? Now he's with God? That's a good thing. What's more, we see a second glimmer of hope in the second Lamech, and I say it like that because if you recall, Moses landed Cain's line of chapter 4 on a total scumbag named Lamech who seemed to rule over his two wives, boasting of killing a young man, whereas Seth's line, the line of the woman, lands on a guy named Noah who's introduced by his father, Lamech, obviously a different Lamech, for, for this Lamech clearly remembers and believes the promise. And before I comment on believing the promise, let me comment on remembering by introducing something we haven't talked about yet. And that's the ages of the people we see in this genealogy. I I trust it comes as no surprise to you that plenty of ink has been spilt 
amongst commentators on this. Uh, this is one of those places who, where people who want to discredit the Bible say, aha, there, there it is, this is rubbish. Nobody lives 969 years. And thus, some have tried creative ways to, to compress these lifespans that I won't even go into, for I happen to believe that these long lives are legit and actually important. Interestingly, on a number of, quote, hard-to-believe items of Genesis, other ancient Near Eastern stories, writings, have, have, have similar types of stories. Whether it's flood narratives. Do you know the Bible is not the only place where there's a flood narrative? Or, or other cultures have writings of very long lives in this time period. You might think of the Sumerian king list. Uh, even stories of deities mating with, with humans. And, and, I, and I would submit to you that the Bible has the actual historical account. And so, sort of demythologizing some of the other accounts. And while some of these are hard for us to believe, because in fact we are far more rational in our thinking than we care to admit, the reality is, we must always remember, our faith begins with a God who spoke and the world came into existence. Our faith begins with a God who took dirt and made our first father, took a piece of our first father's side and made our first mother. Our, our, our Savior was sent, born of a virgin, and actually resurrected from the dead. So we need to be clear, our faith demands the reality that God can and does intervene and causes things to happen that are beyond what we think of as normal and ordinary. And here we see that before the flood, people live much longer than we do today. And again, there's many theories as to why. I happen to believe it's as simple as God's plan of populating the whole earth through two people, right? And you could say the same right after the flood, through those who get off the ark. Notice the constant refrain. This is another key point of this genealogy. The constant refrain, other sons and daughters. Other sons and daughters. Other sons and daughters, which implies to me lots of baby-making going on between each couple that lives 900 years. What I want to point out, though, that is, it was extremely striking to me, is something my friend Jim Hamilton showed me. And, and, and this, I think, really helps when, when we think about the historicity of the accounts we have here. You can look at some of the commentaries that have charts, or you can just do the math yourself. But what you see is that Adam, follow me here, this is important, Adam was still alive when every single one of these individuals in this genealogy, save Noah, were alive. Now, for some of you biblical genealogy experts, you might say, hold on a second, biblical genealogies are well known for skipping large swaths of people, which they are. That, 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 that is true. The, the word fathered can mean grandfathered. It can mean great-grandfathered. So that's right, and that is true of the majority of biblical genealogies. But I don't think that changes this one. Or the one in chapter 11... Because if you notice, even if one of more of these are speaking of a grandfather or great-grandfather, the fact is it tells us how long, for example, Seth lived after Enosh was born, which is the pattern throughout the entire genealogy. So what that means, and we could totally geek out on this if we had time, what that means is in Genesis 11, for example, when God called Abraham... Noah would have been dead, but Noah's son Shem would have still been alive. Noah, Abraham could have taken a trek, gone, found this guy Shem, and said, what was, life, what was life like on the boat? And, and 
more important for today, this genealogy. Notice Adam, again, would have been alive when every single person on the genealogy is alive except Noah. And I'm not, I'm not saying they knew each other, but I'm also not saying they didn't, right? They were far more communal than we are. And so it's just possible, I think even plausible, that Lamech, the second Lamech, the one in Seth's line, had heard stories firsthand from Adam. Hey, Papa Adam, tell me again of the garden. Maybe not from Adam, maybe from Seth. One way or another, though, these guys are still alive. So, so, so these stories could be corroborated. And that's why I say Lamech obviously remembered the story of the fall and the promise that went with it. And so look what he's hoping in. goes right back to the promise given to Adam and Eve, that horrible, no good, very bad day. He's hoping this seed, his boy, might be the one who will come and give them rest. He clearly believes the promise of God. And he seems hopeful that his boy might be the one who crushes the head of the serpent, thereby giving him relief, rest from the results of the fall. And while God will indeed use Noah, a key figure along the way, the kind of rest Lamech is looking for is still way yonder down the corridor of time. And as Moses continues to narrate what's going on, he shows us that the downward spiral continues as we move into chapter 6. Look back at the text. As we proceed in the narrative, we do need to remember chapter and verse numbers are not original, right? They were added much, much later. And here, what you need to know from just where you're at is you're still in the second Toledoth. Moses is still working through the these are the generations of Adam section that's going to land on God's decision to bring about the flood and save the line through Noah. And here we have some really challenging questions for the interpreter. And to be honest, we run the risk for the next few minutes of losing the forest for the trees. And I'm going to try really hard not to, but we also have a few verses here that are often glossed over because no one wants to deal with them, and I don't want to make that error either. The fact is, verses 1 through 4 are extremely difficult for the interpreter. I think they're some of the most difficult verses in the entire Bible. Literally, questions abound with every single phrase. And so we want to try to do our best to understand what's going on. And in the hopes of not losing the forest for the trees, I want to say up front, and I'm going to repeat in a bit, that we could answer some of the questions we're going to dig into. We can answer them differently and really not affect the overarching meaning of this Toledoth. For example, the 120 years. Is it the time from that point to the flood, or is it where lifespans are going to land after the flood? It's worth digging into. It's important. We should try to understand it, but it really doesn't affect the big picture And I say that with confidence because with everything preceding this, and when we get down to verse 5 here in chapter 6, what is clear beyond the shadow of a doubt is that judgment, which is where all of this is pushing, judgment, the flood, comes about because of the sinfulness of man. And regardless of how we answer a few questions raised by verses 1 through 4, that does not change, okay? That being said... There's some key information that Moses wants us to see in verses 1 through 4. And as best I can tell, I think this is similar to what I said a minute ago about the ages of people in the genealogy. 
or various flood narratives in ancient Near Eastern writings. In other words, I think this section's here, at least in part, to set real, actual history over against some of the myth that was widespread in ancient Near Eastern writings that would have been well known to Moses' original hearers. So, a few minutes to drill down in some of the details, and then we'll zoom back out. Like I said, there are questions over just about every phrase of these four verses, but the three big questions are there on your outline. Who are the sons of God and daughters of man? What is the 120 years, and who are the Nephilim? So first, who are the sons of God and daughters of men? It's a hard question. I think the reason we struggle with this one so much is because we are so rational in our thinking, and quite frankly, even though, as we already said, we worship a God who spoke and the world came into existence, we worship a Savior born of a virgin, we're told in the New Testament that we need to be mindful that there's a spiritual battle going on all around us all the time, and even though we know that stuff, we still have a hard time with the supernatural world of the Bible. That said, I take the daughters of man to be normal human women, who we see spoken of in chapter 5. These are the other sons and daughters, over and over again, chapter 6, and daughters were born to them. So I take the daughters of man to be these normal, ordinary human daughters in the line of Seth. I take the sons of God to be fallen angels, which, by the way, is the oldest interpretation of this passage. I think it's how the original readers would have taken this passage. And linguistically, it makes the most sense of the rest of the Bible. Because throughout the Old Testament, this phrase, sons of God, is used with reference to angels. Not to mention, I believe that there are two New Testament texts that interpret Genesis 6 this way. And if that is indeed true, it makes it undeniable in my understanding of Scripture interpreting Scripture. As best I can tell, the best arguments against this view are One, we just don't like it, right? It doesn't feel right. It doesn't compute with our understanding of the Bible. And two, the argument is said that it doesn't explain the fall because they would say, why is God judging man for something that the angels initiated? But again, I said earlier, 6-5 explains the fall. I don't think that's the purpose of verses 1 through 4, though I do think it's tied to the 120 years. Now, before I explain why I take it this way. Let me give you two other views because you obviously don't have to take it the way I do. There are arguments for and against every one of these. The second view, I would say the view that feels right to my rational brain. In fact, it's the view I like a lot, the view that I used to hold, is the view that the sons of God are the godly line of the seed of the woman. So here are the Sethites from the genealogy of Genesis 5. The daughters of man are the seed of the serpent from Genesis 4, or the line of Cain. And so, in this understanding, the problem which you're dealing with is the problem of intermarriage that we know becomes an issue later in the Mosaic Law. And again, this makes good sense to me on the surface, because each of these narratives is pushing us toward the ultimate seed of the woman. And so, here the problem is that some in the godly line of the woman see some hot girls and see some hot girls from the wicked line of Cain, I should say, and they know they're in the wicked line of Cain, but they're good looking, 
And thus they follow the pattern of Eve in Genesis 3. They see that they're attractive and they take them anyway. And at one level, again, I, I like that one a lot. It feels right. The problem is the way it's framed here in the text. Throughout the narrative, it's man, 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 man. Just read the text. Never are these men called sons of God. The godly line of Seth are men who have other sons, the sons that come from man, and they have other daughters, daughters that come from man. Even in the framing of verse 1, when man began to multiply on the land and daughters were born to them. To who? To the men described here. So, so the reader would assume these are the daughters described in 6.1 and throughout chapter 5, which means they're the daughters in the line of Seth, right? That's just the plain reading of the text. A, a third view, I think gets the daughters right, they say that the sons of God are kings from other nations. Other, other ancient Near Eastern writings consider kings, you might think of a pharaoh, they think of kings as sons of God. And so this view says ungodly kings from other nations come and see that the daughters of man, the, the, the daughters of Seth, they, they see that they're attractive and they take them for themselves. And again, this makes sense on the surface, but to me it just can't stand. For one thing, the appeal is to the language of other ancient Near Eastern writings, not to the language of the Bible. The Bible, again, consistently uses the phrase sons of God for angels. And second, notice that the second two views can't even agree on the daughters of men. It seems that we're grasping for non-supernatural answers for the sons of God, and therefore just kind of make the daughters fit whichever you need them to. But if you take the daughters of man in its most natural sense in the text, human women of the line of Seth, and you take the sons of God in the supernatural sense, it makes the best sense of the text. I know we struggle with it, but it makes the best sense of the text. And again, just so you don't think I'm crazy, it is the way sons of God is used consistently. In fact, Peter Gentry says it's the only way it's used throughout the Old Testament. You see it in Job 1.6, Job 2.1, Job 38.7, Daniel 3.25, right? This is just the consistent way sons of God are used. What's more, there are two texts in the New Testament that I think are pointing to this passage, and both of them clearly speak of angels. Second Peter 2, Peter's making the argument that difficult times are coming through false teachers. He appeals to the Old Testament, saying, in effect, if God can deliver people then, He can surely deliver them now. And he gives two examples to support this, not three, and that's important. The structure in the original makes it clear. The two examples are Genesis 6 through 8, in Genesis 19. Each example has two parts, each part connected by chi, and then the two examples are connected by chi, the word and, okay? So it's just the structure is pretty, pretty clear. Appealing first to Genesis 6 through 8, he speaks of God not sparing the angels who sinned. Then he connects that to God not sparing the ancient world but preserving Noah. So, so there's a clear connection with angels who sinned and this, this time of Noah. Next, he points to Sodom and Gomorrah and God's rescue of Lot in Genesis 19. It says that he didn't spare Sodom and Gomorrah and rescued Lot. And again, in both instances, there's a negative and a positive. Both instances are connected by the word and. And so when you, when you wrestle that passage to the mat, you ask the question, what angels is he talking about who sinned in that time period? And the answer seems pretty clear. 
It's the sons of God from Genesis 6. Jude, I think, also speaks of this incident. Jude speaks of angels who didn't stay in their own position of authority, but instead left their proper dwelling. Then he, compa- then he compares the angel's sin to the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, leading the interpreter to question, where do we see angels sinning with a similar sexual perversion to Sodom and Gomorrah? And by that, I'm not saying homosexual perversion, but deviating from God's design. And the answer is Genesis 6. Now, some say, hold on a second. Jesus in the Gospels, when asked about the resurrection, says that in the resurrection we will neither marry nor be given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven, and implied there they don't marry. Thus they would say this can't be what Genesis 6, 2 Peter 2, or Jude is talking about, but I don't think that argument works. Jesus says the angels in heaven, Jude specifically tells us, That these angels in Genesis Genesis 6 didn't stay in their position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. As a result, God has bound them. Remember that. We'll come back to that. He's bound them so they can't keep doing that. And he's reserved them for final judgment, which leads to the discussion of 120 years in the Nephilim, as best I can tell. Whereas some take the 120 years to be a reference to the time until the flood, I take it as a reference to God limiting human life to 120 years. And again, every one of these decisions in the first four verses are debated. Here, some say it can't be limiting life to 120 years because in Genesis, these lives don't immediately drop. I mean, Noah's about to live 950 years, and in the next genealogy, they live quite long. That said, I still think it's the best reading of the text, and by the time we get to Moses, the writer of the Pentateuch, lifespan is topping out at 120 So perhaps you think in terms of being similar to the death penalty for Adam and Eve and it not being executed immediately. I I take it this way because I think there seem to be some connections here with Genesis 3. So I already alluded to the sin of Genesis 6 being described with the same wording as Genesis 3, right? The angels saw that the human women were attractive and thus they took them even though they weren't supposed to. Another connection is that while Adam sat by passively, while Eve saw that it was attractive and took it, so also we're in a patriarchal culture. Let's be clear, no daughters get married without dad's permission. You're going to see that in the narratives. Here then, it's implied that fathers either failed to protect their daughters, or were all in on it. They were thrilled with the situation. Maybe they thought it would help them. Which leads to another connection that I think Moses is showing us. And while I wouldn't stake my life on this, it would seem to me that the connection between the language of chapter 6, verse 3 and 3.22, specifically about living forever, it would seem that there's this connection there with the union between the angels and the women, and maybe something in that was a hope that they might regain what was lost, that is, immortality. And thus God says, my spirit, which I take to be Breath, right? Spirit, breath can be the same thing. Depends on the context. I take that to be the breath of life. Shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, and thus will be limited to 120 years. And you can wrestle that yourself. Like I said, it's not easy. And we still got to deal with the Nephilim. So hang in there. Who are they? Well, some say they're the product of the union between the angels and the human women. So like Gilgamesh... They say they're demigods, part human, part otherworldly. 
And this is difficult because the only other time the Nephilim show up in the Bible is Numbers 13, when the spies go in, remember, they go spy out the land, and they're scared to death, and they come back and say, quote, we saw the Nephilim, for it seemed we were like grasshoppers to them. Oh, here's the deal. Even if they were quite large like Goliath, like grasshoppers, I think we would admit, is already hyperbole. And thus, what many, myself included, thinking what's going on here is they're clearly scared. They don't want to take the land. And they say, these people are huge. <laughs> they, they look like the, the stories we heard of the, of the Nephilim. See, I think we can be quite certain that the Nephilim of Genesis 6, whoever they are, are not the same lineage described in Numbers 13 because no Nephilim make it onto, onto the ark. Right? The only way to argue that the Nephilim are still there in Numbers 13 is if you take the demigod route and argue that this cohabiting of fallen angels and women continues on after the flood. But see, I think Jude is pushing against that because he says they're now bound up. I think that's symbolic that they're no longer able to do what they did and they're now awaiting final judgment. So here's what I think is going on. Test it for yourself. This is where I land, and I'm helped by Peter Gentry here, who's a far better Hebrew scholar than I would ever dream of being. I think similar to the flood narrative that we'll get to, similar to the ages of the pre-flood folks that we've already discussed, I think Moses is taking something well-known to those around them and showing them what in fact is real history and not myth. So in teaching the truth, he's demythologizing these common stories. Here it would seem that there's a widespread belief in a group of people called the Nephilim. And we got to be honest, we don't know who they are. Translators don't even translate this word. This is a transliterated word. You take Hebrew characters, bring them over into English, and you make up some word that means nothing, right? What we do know is that Moses says they're mighty men of old, men of renown. It seems to me, given what Moses says here, and given the allusion to these folks in Numbers 13, that there were these great men of renown in those days, right? Probably great warrior types who over time as their stories were being told, they start to be embellished. Perhaps they heard of stories of angels cohabiting with women. And so they start talking about offspring of humans and gods, again, like Gilgamesh. What Gentry points out is the way the language, the Hebrew is used in, in, in here, the most likely reading has Moses saying something to the effect of, yes, historically, there were some unions between angels and humans, but they had nothing to do with the Nephilim. In other words, he argues the best way to take verse 4 is the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, that is the same time period, angels cohabited with women, and also afterward, so after the deed had been done, but saying nothing of the flood. And thus with this reading, the Nephilim have nothing to do with the offspring of women and angels, and whoever they are, they're about to drown anyway, which is where the passage is going and where we need to go because that's where our inspired writer goes. In fact, one of the things I, I do want to point out in sort of wrapping this up is however you take the challenges of verses 1 through 4, we should be clear, contrary to the elaborate descriptions of unions between gods and humans and demigods and all of that in other ancient literature, notice that Moses simply says, Yes, this happened. God was obviously not okay with it. Shut it down. 
but the focus is God. The focus is God and His relationship with man. And that takes us to verses 5 through 8. Look back at the text. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. In the creation account of Genesis 1, with each day the Lord spoke, what he spoke came into existence. The text says that he saw his work and said that it was good, right? Of course, the sixth day he spoke, he saw, and it was very good. Verse 5 is to stand in direct contradistinction to that. Here, just a few generations in, long generations, mind you, but you're just a few generations in, and the Lord looked down and he saw, this time he saw the work of man, that it was not good. In fact, the contrast should be startling to the reader. Genesis 6, 5, a passage every Christian should memorize because it makes clear the score. See, from this and other texts, theologians get our doctrine of the total depravity of man. Here we see the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart only evil continually. You say, well, that's the Old Testament. Well, the New Testament's got the same view of man. In Romans 3, we read, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And if we don't understand this divine perspective on humanity, who we are, we will never understand the gospel. That's a big statement. Let me say it again. If we don't understand this divine perspective on humanity, we will never understand the gospel. I'm getting ahead of myself. Moses tells us the score. Man is utterly rebellious. Every intention of the thoughts of our heart, only evil continually. And thus, God was grieved in verse 6. And that's the main point of verse 6. Well, we get sideways here because of the various ways we understand some of the English words and what's going on. But what we must walk away from when we read verse 6 is that our sin grieves God. Our sin grieves God. We need to recognize that. We need a sense of that. That's why David with Bathsheba, after bumping off Uriah, is against you and you only have I sinned. He's not an idiot. He knew he sinned against Bathsheba. He knew he sinned against Uriah. He knew he sinned against Uriah's mama. Our sin grieves God. The point of verse 6 isn't that God's wringing his hands. Oh man, I messed up with these folks. I didn't see the fall coming. Man, I wish I could just start over. No, God is unchanging. But God is both transcendent, so his ways are way above our ways. 
but he's also imminent. He is fully engaged with his people, and to the degree that that's true, and we know that it is, we must be clear, our sin grieves God. Ken Matthews says it well in his commentary. He says, quote, God's response of grief over making the making of humanity is not remorse in the sense of sorrow over mistaken creation. Our verse shows that God's pain has its source in the perversion of human sin. The making of man is no error. It is what man has made of himself. By recurring reference to mankind in 6, 5 through 7, the passage focuses on the source of his grief. God is grieving because this sinful man is not the pristine mankind who he has made to bear his image. The intensity of the pain is described by the use of the Hebrew word naham elsewhere in Genesis where it describes mourning over the loss of a family member due to death. But his is not regret over destroying humanity. Paradoxically, so foul has become mankind that it is necessary step to salvage him, end quote. While not a perfect analogy, God is grieved over man's sin like a human father who watches, say, his son squander away his life with drugs and licentious living. That father loves his son, but he's grieved. It's painful to watch what he's making of his life. And that's not a perfect analogy because no father loves perfectly or grieves without glimmers of ungodly feelings. But for a holy God, as Matthews says, such utter rebellion both grieves God and also necessitates judgment. See, the die is now cast for the flood that we'll study in the coming weeks. And again, we must be clear that what precipitates the flood is human sin, human rebellion. Now, We do see one more glimmer of grace in this text. In verse 8, we read, but Noah found favor. Grace is actually a legitimate translation there. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And we need to not lose our way here. This is important. We were just told the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart is only evil continually. And that is true of Noah as well. We know that because it's all mankind. We also know that because the text tells us that. When Noah gets out of the ark, now all these wicked people are dead, and Noah offers a sacrifice to God, and God says after the flood, after the sacrifice, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Nothing's changed in the heart of man. And we see that play out in the next chapter after that statement where you find Noah drunk and naked in his tent. And again, this is vital for our understanding. This grace shown to Noah, this picture of Enoch being taken, Noah's dad believing the promise, all of these are pointing us ahead to the Lord Jesus because Jesus' death on the cross promised at the very beginning, Genesis 3, is the only way God could both punish sin and show grace to the guilty. It is the only way, as Paul says in Romans 3, that God could be both the just and the justifier. See, any and every single instance of man being made right with God is all of grace all the time. And any failure to understand this is a complete failure to understand the gospel. Talked about this with our youth a few weeks ago as we're taking them through theology. We said it's vital to have a robust doctrine of sin. 
People are like, I don't like to talk about sin. Well, we better, right? We better have a robust doctrine of sin because the gospel, listen close, the gospel is not God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And, and while your life is pretty good now, if you'll trust in Jesus, it can get even better. That's how it's often presented. The gospel is not, your life's okay, but your marriage is struggling, or maybe you don't have the job of your dreams, and so pray this prayer, trust in Jesus, and your life will go from okay to awesome. Let me be straight. That is a false gospel. That is American Prosperity Theology 101. The fact is, our text this morning and the rest of the Bible make it very, very clear. There's no good news unless you understand the bad news. And the bad news is that you and you and you and you and you and you and me, all of us, are all sinners outside of Christ. Every intention of the thoughts of our heart was only evil continually. And we deserved God's wrath. And friends, you might be here this morning and you've never trusted in Christ. And I will share the bad news with you that unless you look to Christ, unless you believe on Christ, you will receive His wrath for all eternity. But I would just say you don't have to. I would plead with you to look to Jesus. See, God's answer to all of this was His Son that He spoke of all the way back at the very beginning. And he teaches little bits about him all the way through the Old Testament. And then in God's perfect timing, Jesus came onto the scene, born of a virgin. So no sin. Wasn't born with sin nature like us. He, 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 he lived the perfect life we could never live. He succeeded where Adam failed, where Israel failed, where we failed. And, and, he, and he goes to the cross. Not for his own sin. He didn't have any but to bear the punishment for ours. So that for those who believe in Christ, this amazing exchange happens. He takes all of our sin and it's dealt with. It's removed from God's accounting as far as the east is from the west. And that righteous, perfect life is somehow amazingly credited to our account so that on judgment day when we stand before God, praise the Lord, He doesn't see our sin, which we're full of, he sees his son who he's well pleased with. And friend, I would plead with you, look to Christ this morning, trust in Jesus. For the Christians, I know we're going, we've gone long, so I'll be short. For the Christians, rest in this. Lamech, Noah's dad, was looking for that rest. He was hopeful that his boy might bring that rest, and he couldn't, but Jesus did. And we can rest. We can find rest in Christ. We can rest from trying to earn our way with God. We can, we can rest from, from trying to make ourselves to where we can be fit for the kingdom. Jesus is the only way. And he's already accomplished it. And we can rest in him. Oh, that is good news. Glorious news. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. And as we now go to the Lord's table, Father, would you press this home even further? Just remind us, teach us ever anew of the glorious gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen.